following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of August 2nd, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Simone Biles' Olympics, her decision to pull herself from the team finals, and everything that's happened since. We'll also discuss the U.S. women's soccer team's loss to Canada, plus all of the Texans, one of whom represents Italy, that have caught our attention during the past week at the Tokyo Games. And finally, we'll speak with ESPN's Jeff Passan about the hyperactive baseball trade deadline and what it was like to be a reporter during that deadline frenzy. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the new podcast, One Year. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. And with us from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, good morning. I uh, made sure to mention Texas in that intro just to get you hype. So I am... Uh, Expecting a certain level of enthusiasm and energy to percolate through the whole show just by virtue of that uh, mention of Texans. I mean, normally as a Texan, we're willing to claim all Texans, but I mean, El Paso barely has anything <laughs> in common with Houston, so I can't, I can't, I can't say that I could get too hype about that. I mean, it's not even in the same time zone as the rest of the Come state. Come on, man, a Texas dude wins the hundred meter dash, and you can't get pumped, Joel. I, mean, I find this fascinating that there's a Texan who wins an Olympic gold medal in the hundred meters that Joel doesn't want to claim, but we'll save that for later. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. At this time last week, Simone Biles had made some uncharacteristic mistakes in the team qualification round at the Tokyo Games. She went out of bounds on her floor routine and on her first vault. She also took three steps on her balance beam dismount. But even so, she finished first in that competition, and she scored highly enough to make every individual apparatus final. She could have won, theoretically, six gold medals, team, individual, and all four apparatuses. But then during the team finals, as probably everyone knows, she flubbed her vault, then opted out of the rest of the competition, saying, among other things, that she was fighting with her own head and that she needed to focus on her well-being. Since then, she has pulled out of all of those individual apparatus finals, except, we learned on Monday, the balance beam, where she will compete very early Tuesday morning, Eastern time. Joel, that point-by-point recap I just went through does not really convey how enormous the story has been, how much it's dominated the Olympics news cycle, but also just the world. Um, We know about all the hype around Biles going to the Olympics, and it was just stunning how this unfolded early last week. So looking back on everything that's happened, what are the first things that come to mind for you? I think at a 30,000-foot view you know, the the broadest possible lens. I think it's what these particular games deserve. 
And, you know, I, I should qualify that by saying we all know that I've been a grump about staging these Olympics under these circumstances. And even though I know that there were so many sunk costs that they had to have them, I get that. I get that. But um, I'm not very excited about us having these games right now. But to get back to Simone Biles, I've got my doubts about whether Simone Biles wanted to do this again and how she was convinced, if not compelled, to compete in another Olympics. Because so much of what we're seeing on TV is because NBC and the IOC were counting on Simone Biles, like the hype around her and, you know, her solidifying her case as being the, you know, so-called goat. Um, We've also seen a bunch of commercials that Simone Biles is in. Absolutely. Absolutely. She is the star of these games, Um, even still. So, you know, so beyond the pressure she puts on herself, being on an eight-year winning streak, all of these billion-dollar entities and at least two countries counting on her and reaping the rewards of Simone Biles, it's a massive disappointment. But it didn't happen. It didn't have to happen this way. And maybe we shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, as we discussed last week, Simone looked shaky at the trials. She's not been very happy with Team USA USA Gymnastics. And then she got off to this uneven start at the games, even though, as you mentioned, Josh, she was you know in position to win six golds. Um, it's her falling apart was not a surprise, but that we haven't seen the Simone Biles of the past eight years isn't. Don't you think, Stefan? Like, like it, we knew that she wasn't necessarily at peak form coming into Tokyo. Yeah, I think it was clear. I mean, some of this is twenty twenty, but you know, if you go back, as we discussed last week, a little bit, if you go back and look at her interviews over the course of the last year and a half. She was not psyched about having to go through training during the pandemic and coming back at age 24. It was a burden to her. Um, and I think people just, and we've discussed this too, people aren't aware of how, under the best of circumstances, the lives of elite athletes, particularly in individual sports, are grueling and tedious. Um, and that training for an Olympics requires the kind of commitment, repetition, exertion that most of us just can't fathom. And then you layer in the pandemic, and on top of that, you layer in Biles, you know, one of her stated reasons for coming back so that the U.S. team would include a victim of Larry Nassar's abuse, so that USA Gymnastics, the federation, which Biles has criticized constantly, could not move on from the scandal. She told NBC if there weren't a remaining survivor in the sport, they would have just brushed it to the side. I think the best column post Biles dropping out last week was by Sally Jenkins in the Washington Post, who noted that abuse is a current event for her. And she was disgusted by the fact that the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and USA Gymnastics have continued to fight responsibility for uh, Larry Nasser and what happened to hundreds of gymnasts um, in civil court cases, in bankruptcy court proceedings. You know, Sally Jenkins wrote, they are not her supporters, they are her tormentors. And having to compete under those circumstances had to add to her emotional burden going into the games. Uh, Rachel Den Hollander um, was the well, former former uh, gymnast who was the first person to file a report, a police report against Larry Nasser back in 2016, called the Olympics a huge trigger. So, you know, I think that the outpouring of support for Biles, which she acknowledged later in the week, has been huge. Um, but let's not underestimate the difficulty of just competing in these games, let alone getting there and finding that, you know, her routine 
was threatened mentally. You know, she'd get those twisties in the air, not knowing where you are, and the danger of that um, in, 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 in gymnastics competition. So, Yeah, I wanted to talk about the intersection of the physical and the mental here, because, yeah. you know, and she's been very kind of open and, and candid about this, sharing videos on Instagram of her inability to twist in the air. Um, she went to a private gym in Tokyo mm -hmm. because the actual practice gym just has these hard competition floors. And she's at a stage right now, given her uncertainty with her ability to do these incredibly challenging aerial routines where she needed to practice in a foam pit and just like putting these videos and these captions about how she doesn't really know what's where she is in the air and doesn't really understand why. And so I think as we're kind of talking with some level of confidence about all of the challenges that these games um, had for her, all of the kind of the sense that I think you correctly pointed out, Joel, that it seemed like this was all a slog for her. But I do think it's important to emphasize that she has been trying in the gym to get back and continue to compete even with all of, I, I think, according to her, like on her social media, she has felt the love from people saying she doesn't need to do this. Right. I think she's felt validated. And, and I think she's right that she should focus on her well-being and her mental health. And yet she still does want to get back and she is going to get back on the balance beam. And I, I guess what I was trying to say with like, we should be careful about how confident we are. She has said she doesn't understand herself why this is happening and has said even in times when things maybe weren't as rough for her she has had the twisties before and so many gymnasts have come out in the last week josh and talked about that phenomenon and it, you know and by discussing all of this in aggregate joel i think it can seem like we are conflating the two that her yeah. her dissatisfaction mm -hmm. with USA Gymnastics and the slog of having to train during the pandemic are somehow connected to her loss of balance in the air and her loss of space in the air and place in the air. They may be completely separate things that have nothing to do with anything with each other. This this physic this phenomenon that gymnasts experience comes on. Um, and for Simone Biles, it may have literally just come on at the worst possible time and had nothing to do with all of these other external factors. That's true. We don't have to put any words in her mouth. You know, we can take her at, you know, uh, her word and at her videos that this is, you know, something that is common amongst gymnasts and that, like you said, she experienced it at the absolute worst time for that. Um, but it also seems reasonable to assume that there may be some other factors outside of that, because again, she called herself the goat. We, mm -hmm. you know, we we think of her the goat. She calls herself the goat. It's on her leotard. Yeah, right. Like she's been dominant for the last eight years. No, it nobody had ever could conceived of the idea that she might lose until it happened. Or, and, and really, it's hard to say that she lost. I mean, she just removed herself from the competition so yeah and again it's like worth emphasizing that her routines are so challenging the difficulty mm -hmm. scores are so high that even with all those mistakes i enumerated in the intro she qualified in first place yeah absolutely so i mean you know 
again, I, I want to take her at her word. I believe her, but I also don't think it's irresponsible of us to, you know, suggest that maybe there are some things outside of that that, um, you know, led up to this moment. And again, it's hard to look past the woman we saw at the trials, you know, who did not, you know, cried and had a breakdown and did not seem very happy um, from what we're seeing now. But I, I, the one good thing about it is that, like as you all have mentioned, I mean, she's trying to compete again. Like, she's going to compete in the balance beam final, which suggests that, like, she is still... Uh, got her head into the game. She still wants to compete. She wants to do everything that she should, said she wanted to do before the games. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's like admirable that she's willing to put herself back out there again um, and, and get over these twisties. Like, I, I didn't know that you could potentially overcome it within, within the span of a few days, right? Well, I think what's important to point out, too, is, and what I think like the most important message of all this is that this is an athlete who recognized that something was wrong and said, no, I'm not going to do this. Um, the Wall Street Journal's Louise Radnovsky and Andrew Beaton um, had a piece uh, a couple days ago that talked about how Simone Biles back in 2013, when she would have been like 16 years old, um, got hurt during a meet and had to be withdrawn from the competition and contrasted that with her making the decision at age 24 to take herself out. And that might be a function of a 24-year-old brain that is more mature than a teenage brain, that is less willing to take risks, that is more um, aware of the dangers of what she's doing, um, but also someone who's been through so much and has accumulated so much respect and power in her sport that she's able to say no and send a message to other athletes that it's okay to say no if you don't feel right. Yeah, I actually, and I, I want to kind of double back on something I said last week about the Carolis, Um, you know, because I, I, I want to make sure that I wasn't misunderstood because I, I think maybe some people may have walked away from last week thinking that I was implying that Team USA needs the Carolis, um to, you know, maintain its dominance, and that's not it at all. Um, I, I The thing is, though, is that we don't know what a non-abusive gym culture looks like at the elite levels here in this country because it's been going on for so long. I mean, the Carolis have been over uh, Team USA for so long or USA Gymnastics for so long that we just don't know. And so we're coming out of that and maybe whatever comes after that will be much more healthy. And maybe it will be as dominant. We have no idea. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to overlook the abusive atmosphere that they allowed to flourish and thrive while they were running it. Um, but it just, I, I, maybe this is just the fallout of people that are sort of coming out of, you know, an abusive period. And, you know, the, the team is sort of scrambling to find itself again in this post-Corotli era. But I, I, I just wanted to make sure that I did not let people think that, oh, Team USA has to have the Corollis to be successful because I don't believe that. Um, I do think that, though, it's, the team is in sort of an identity crisis, right? And, um, and there are other great nations. Like, there's a lot of great teams around the world that, you know, Team USA is not competing against itself. They've always had, the you know, other countries right on their heels. So I don't know, man. Joel, not recently. Seems... They didn't have anybody on their heels in, in Rio. That's for yeah. sure. But let's not forget, Joel, that Sunisa Lee, Suni Lee, the first Hmong American to compete in the Olympics, um, 18 years old, seems to have grown up in a non-abusive gymnastics culture. Um, she won the gold medal in the all-round after Simone Biles dropped out, and that is a wonderful story that we shouldn't overlook in you know in in, in when all the focus is on Simone Biles and and her decisions. 
Yeah, I wanted to talk about Sunni Lee and sort of the fine lines that were talking about here. But bef- before I get to her, um, Rebecca Schumann did a really good piece reframing the famous Carrie Strug vault from the 1996 Olympics, which was seen at the time. And I think afterwards as this kind of moment of self-sacrifice and athletic um, performance in the clutch. And then that was like the kind of Bella Caroli moment of him kind of injecting himself into the situation by like, you know, encouraging her to do it, but also like carrying her afterwards when she was on this like horribly injured ankle and she hops and, you know, has to be carried around or if she didn't have to be carried, it was like a performance of her having to be carried. And that I think is the standout modern moment of America. I mean, I guess there's like the Mary Lou Redden, then Carrie Strug, and then Simone Biles, maybe, I don't know, in like modern American gymnastics history. And, you know, what Rebecca wrote rightfully is like Carrie Strug didn't have to do that vault and she didn't even have to do it for the U.S. to win. But also if she didn't do it and the U.S. didn't win, that would have been okay too. Um, And so just kind of bracketing that for a second, it was very noticeable for me when Simone Biles pulls out and NBC is having this like actually like pretty enlightened conversation about it. And like they have Michael Phelps and Nastia Lucan talking about the importance of mental health and they're being extremely supportive of her. The only glaring omission there, as Justin Peters wrote, is not at all discussing their own role in building up all of the the hype around this one person that was too much or, you know, for, for any individual to bear. But they then turn their attention to Suni Lee and there's a feature about her and her father who they have a great relationship. He built the beam in the backyard. You've probably heard about it. And her father gets in this really bad accident and is now in a wheelchair. And what this feature noted is that this accident came just a couple days before the U.S. championships, which Suni Lee went on to compete in and did very, very well in. And it's her choice. She wanted to do it. Her family encouraged her to do it. I'm not saying she shouldn't have done it. But (laughs) this is where I think the kind of NBC Olympics narrative promotion machine comes in. You don't have to highlight it as a thing that shows her courage and strength and bravery, this decision. It would have been courageous and strong and brave after doing all this training to decide, you know what? My dad got in this terrible accident. Maybe I'm not in the right headspace. And again, she made the right decision for her. I'm just saying, when you put that frame the decision in the way that they framed it, it makes it seem like that was the right decision, or you risk making it seem like that was the right decision for everyone to show that kind of courage and bravery. And and it was a reminder for me that for all that like the conversation has diverged from the usual pathways this week, um, in in useful ways, just like how easily they can just like click right, right. back into place around like what the expectations are for these athletes and the and the kinds of decisions that are made that are deemed kind of courageous and feature-worthy. Well, you're, you say that she made a decision. This is a 16-year-old whose father has just been in a horrific accident. You know, it's certainly 
not in NBC's purview to probably include in their soft feature about her that her coach could have said, no, Sunu, you're not going to participate in this competition. You need to be home with your family. Um, the, the Sort of the alternative um, analysis of an event like that in someone's life. Or as you point out, Josh, maybe it's not even worth discussing like because there's no real way to sort of frame it as a net positive or you know cast it as sort of part of the narrative that helps shape this gold medalist. Right. I guess my thought is, is that, yeah, I, I don't want to read too much into Simone Biles' decisions here because nobody else is Simone Biles. Like very few people can even afford to say, I'm not going to compete and still be welcomed onto the team and allowed to, you know, um, be around the team under those circumstances. You know, for somebody like Suni Lee or some of the other, you know, teenagers that are on this team, they don't necessarily have that kind of autonomy. They don't necessarily have, you know, the sort of power within the sport to advocate for themselves in the way that Simone did. And so Mm -hmm. while it's been revelatory and you hope that people take the example of Simone protecting herself, her health, physical, mental, and otherwise, um, as a lesson to be learned and to apply to themselves, let's just not be unrealistic and think that everybody else can do this because Simone Biles is Simone Biles for a reason, right? Um, and she's accrued all this power and this reputation and everything within within her field, but that's just not available to everybody. Well, it is available to everybody if they're willing and their and their families and coaches are willing to say, this is not that important. There are things that are more important and that is a message that's applicable to any athlete. But it's a collective action problem. And sure. I, I think that's a great point, Joel, that I hadn't considered, that if Suni Lee decides not to compete in the U.S. championships and, you know, she she placed very well, maybe she doesn't get on this Olympics mm-hmm. team and, and, and get the chance to win a gold medal. And so there are many ways in which, and you made this point too, Stefan, that that decision was not wholly her own, that she was probably feeling pressure in a bunch of different ways. And again, not to say that it was the wrong decision, but to frame it in a kind of simplistic right. way is not great. Well, it worked out for Suni Lee because A, she wins gold, and B, it changes the course of her family's entire life. I mean, their family did sacrifice tremendously. I mean, to participate in a sport like gymnastics. And now she can get that NIL money at Auburn, baby. Hell yeah, and the regular money she would have gotten anyway. I mean, she gets to get the NIL money or gets to keep the money or gets to go to college and still get the money that she would have gotten for being a gold medalist. And that's not to be trifled with. That's hugely important, but good for her. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So we're going to keep talking about Olympics here in our second segment. And if you're a fan of the games themselves and you wanted to only watch stories of inspiring athletes from all over the world, you're in luck. But if you're watching because you're a rabid fan of Team USA and only care about where the Americans rank in the medal rankings, you've probably not had a great time. They're second in golds behind China, but first overall. 
But from Simone Biles to the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, Team USA has been something of a letdown in Tokyo. And I guess we can start with that most recent disappointment, which was this morning's upset in the women's soccer semifinal where uh, the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team lost 1-0 to Canada. Um, now, the women's national team will play Aust- Australia in Thursday's bronze medal match. But, Stefan, that's not where we thought the women's soccer team was going to be when the Olympics started, right? I mean, I think there were certainly folks that believed that this iteration of the team was not indomitable, um, and it was hard to get a real read on where it was going. Um, And part of my complaint before the tournament was that they had five Olympic tune-ups in the weeks leading up to the games, and they were against number 28 Mexico twice, number 30 Portugal, number 38 Nigeria, and number 51 Jamaica. Their first test was against Sweden in the first game of the Olympics, and they got blown out. And then people thought, oh, bounce back. They beat New Zealand. Well, New Zealand's 22nd in the world. Kind of mediocre. Um, the, they made it to the knockout round. They had to beat the Netherlands. Good side that made it to the World Cup Finals in 2019. But it went to penalty kicks. And then Monday's game against Canada, which was listless in, in terrible heat. Um, but the U.S. looked disconnected, not dynamic, not particularly playing with a sense of urgency. Um, Stefan, not playing with a sense of urgency? That's like dumb announcer talk. Come on, you, you think they, they weren't really trying hard enough? That, I think they were the trying, problem? but it didn't seem like they were getting much done. They weren't connecting particularly well on passes. Um, Canada posed very little threat offensively. The U.S. didn't do much to counter it. The U.S. didn't have a a shot on goal until the 65th minute of this game. Is that better? Is that more detailed? Um, And it just was not a particularly inspiring game. They didn't seem like a dominant force in world soccer. And, you know, we think of the U.S.-Canada rivalry as fairly even, but the U.S. has completely dominated this rivalry over the last, you know, X years and for their entire history. And Canada has not been as good in the recent iterations of their lineup as in as in the previous cycles of the 2015, 2011, and earlier um, in, in the World Cup. So this was kind of dull to watch more than anything. And it's going to raise questions about whether the new head coach, Vlatko Antonovsky, kept around older players like Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino and even uh, Alex Morgan. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a lot of what went wrongs here and is it time to just move forward and sort of turn things over entirely to players in their mid and younger 20s? Well, I mean, and, and Josh, you can, you can take it from here, but I just, when I heard that Megan Rapino was playing, I was like, wait a minute, what? I just thought she was old the last time I saw her compete internationally. And then I'm like, oh, she's still on the team? Like, which suggests to me either, and she is great, but I'm like, that suggests to me that there's not a lot of other people in the pipeline, or there's not enough, or they overlooked people who are in the pipeline that are young enough, dynamic enough to compete at this level, and they went with the old hand, which is fine, but like, you kind of get what you get, right? They had a lineup full of, you know, veterans of the 2019 World Cup victory, who are all, you know, a little bit older, but the depth of the U.S. team was supposed to be what carried them through this tournament with all these games in rapid succession in this heat. And they were rotating 
players way more aggressively than their opponents in this tournament. You know, Carly Lloyd and Megan Rapino, who are the, you know, the older, um, you know, on the older side of this roster, were not playing full 90 minutes or playing full 120 minutes. They were kind of, you know, playing halves of games. And so you can understand how that strategy would be useful. And while Lloyd didn't really do anything, Rapino was, I think, very dangerous throughout the tournament. She was kind of one of the more livelier players and her, you know, crosses as usual were, um, you know, the, the best on the team. The one player, and I don't know if you noticed this, Stefan, who I found to be kind of particularly like lost and not doing anything really of note was Rose Lavelle, who was the hero of the 2019 World Cup, scored that goal against the Netherlands, has mm-hmm. is just unbelievably skilled and talented. And just, I thought, through, I, and I'm not kind of expert enough to really explain why, and I'm more just pointing out what I, what I noticed, just like continually losing the ball in possession, not really ever being dangerous or kind of... Um, you know, leading the attack in the way that you might have thought. And so it feels a little bit simplistic to me to say, you know, younger players good, older players Mm -hmm. bad. I mean, Julie Arts was great. Um, uh, Alyssa Nair was really good and got hurt in this game. I I guess I, I kind of just agree with your assessment, Stefan, that the whole tournament, they just seemed kind of listless and it was a very sort of confusing <laughs> performance and it's not it's not really easy to point to one particular thing but you know the Sweden game was just a comprehensive defeat the likes of which we haven't seen in generations and can't i think really be explained in a like kind of micro way like right. it seemed like something pretty fundamentally was wrong based on that game and you know, Pino in her Megan Rapino in her post game newser um, said things like, "We don't have juice because the ball's bouncing off our shins, and we're not finding open passes and doing the simple things," and sort of wanted to lay that at the feet of the players. Um, and she said, "There's all the preparation you can do, and all the tactics, and then there's everything else, and that's what we were missing." Um, so the, the 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 postmortems of this team. And the sort of inside details of what was missing, I think, are going to be very revealing. And the question now is, does Vlatko Andonovsky, um, you know, <laughs> these were like, I think, the only two losses in his short tenure so far in however many games. But does he get an opportunity to, um, to, to stay in charge of this team leading into the next World Cup in 2023? All right, I am just been waiting for this ever since the introduction. Me too. I just can't wait. I can't wait for Joel's thoughts on El Paso-born Italian Lamont Marcel Jacobs, maybe the most surprising men's hundred meter champion uh, in in my lifetime. Um, our man had not run under ten flat like until this year. Is that right, Joel? Yeah. Right. That's it. it. His first time cracking 10 was in like May or like April of this year. And so he ran a PR in the semis was his first time under nine, nine. Um, and then in the finals, he 
runs 9-8, beats American Fred Curley and the Canadian Andre de Grasse, who I guess was the favorite, and what was like by kind of Olympic 100-meter final standards, a, a pretty weak field. So, um, yeah, what did you see from that race, and, and what do you make of our Texan friend, Lamont Marcel Jacobs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think we talked about this last week, by the way, right, that, you know, the 100-meter, the men's 100-meter final is sort of the premier event of the Olympics, and you would know what it's like there by the crowd or like the scene in the stadium. And so they try to do all these theatrics, you know, the light show, all this stuff for for that field, which doesn't really have a star in it. And it just felt sort of empty. And I was just thinking, this is one of the rare times in my lifetime, even going into the race, I said, I'm not sure if the person who wins this race will still be considered the fastest man alive. I didn't mention the favorite, Trevon Bramel, didn't even make the final, the American. Right, right, right. So I was sort of prepared for a letdown in the post-Usain Bolt era, um, because, like, I mean, that was electrifying, watching Usain Bolt dominate for three Olympics or whatever. But um, the fact that Lamont... (laughs) Lamont Jacobs won. Lamont Jacobs, the the Italian, uh, won. Um, was a surprise, and I guess it's like, it's it's a nice human interest story because he came from nowhere. Not very many people know him, as you mentioned. He cracked ten seconds for the first time in his life uh, in, a few months ago. But I mean, I I'm sort of left uninspired because I don't think that guy is the fastest man alive. I don't think we resolved anything. He ran a great time. I'm not going to like if you run nine eight. Uh, that's amazing. Like, let me just say that. But like, I don't think of him as the man, the world's fastest man alive. And that's usually what the Olympus is supposed to resolve for you. Like that is the culmination of a four year cycle and you build toward that. And that person typically is a star and then they crown themselves by winning the hundred. That's not what happened. We had a guy who ran the best race of his life kind of got lucky because he ran against a weaker field and won. And that's great for him, but I don't know that it's great for, like, building track, you know, uh, making fans of people around the world. You know what I mean? Really? More people paid attention to the winner of that race because it was all of those things that you just described, Joel, because it was out of the blue. Mm. But I want to ask you, you know, how unusual is it for an elite runner to go from 10 flat to 9.8 in the space of a few months? Um, and I'm not suggesting anything here. I'm just sort of curious. Like, is it just race of your life? And this guy is not young either. Right, I mean, right. he's young. He's young in like human standards, but not in. Well, it, it's not like this is something that's like he's he's 18 or 19 and is like you know doing this. So it's not common, but it's increasingly so because Fred Curley, the silver medalist, he had never run a sub 10 second hundred until. Where April. is he from? Uh, he's from Texas, Taylor, Texas. Uh, shout out, you know, Central Texas, right outside Austin. <laughs> Uh, he went to Texas A&M, though, so I can't really claim it. I was, you know, wait, I was wait look- so Central Texas is okay, but El Paso is not okay? <laughs> uh, El Paso is in the mountain time zone. It's not even in the time, the rest of the time zone is the rest of the state. So <laughs> you, can, you can live your whole life it's, in Texas and never go to El Paso. It's taken us all this time to learn that when Joel is, you know, bragging on everyone, he only cares about the central time zone. Yeah, but- I, I, it's just, I mean, it, look, I'm proud of him that he's a Texan, but if you're from Texas... It's it's very hard to have an attachment to El Paso. Most of us have never been there. I did go for the 2004 Sun Bowl once, but... Uh, <laughs> but it somehow didn't cement your affection for the place. I, I love El Paso. I think it's great. I don't think of it as Texas, though. Um, <laughs> but, 
Yeah, I mean, so it, 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 this, is, it, this was sort of an anomaly. Like, you know, Andre DeGrasse probably should have been the favorite, but he didn't run particularly well. You know what would have been really fun? If the guy that he'd run fastest in the semifinals, um, Su Bin Chan, he's from China, if he had won, because he ran a 9-8-3 in the semifinals. And in fact, his heat is the reason why Trayvon Brumel didn't qualify for the final, because it ran so fast unexpectedly in that heat. In that heat, by the way, Lamont Jacobs finished second, almost third. So um, it was like a very weird buildup to it. But if that guy had won the 100, I think that would have been amazing for the like track as a sport around the world. But he didn't, you know, Su Bin Chan didn't, Bing Chan did not do well. And I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I'm sure our listeners are going to tell me that if, if I pronounce it correctly or not. But um it would have been great to see him win, but he didn't do so well in the final. But yeah, I mean, you know, look, man, Lamont Jacobs looks just like one of my cousins. He's from Texas. Um, he really does. No, Josh, he does look like my cousin. My cousin, who is, I should just say, by the way, Dwayne as a college basketball ref, he got in trouble once uh, for holding up an LSU shirt. Do you? Does this sound familiar to you? Josh at all? No. Have you not heard about this story? Anyway, I'm sure we can link to the page. Actually, nobody cares. It's just my cousin. <laughs> all right, let's talk about the other Italian triumph yeah. from over the weekend. Stefan, uh, Gianmarco Tamberi, and Mutaz Essa Barshim of uh, Qatar shared the high jump title. So they are friends and competitors, um, and they both failed to clear 7 feet 10 inches, and at that point, the three tries at 7'10", they didn't get over. And at that point, the rules apparently state that you can have a jump off, sudden death, um, or they could share the gold medal. And here is a clip of the rules official talking to the two athletes, informing them what their options were. Uh, we can continue with the jump off. Can but we have two gold? possible. It, it depends if you decide, History, if you decide on Olympic Okay, so clearly they decided to share the gold medal right in that moment, but the best part for me was, of course, the sportocrat on the field answering Barshim's question about whether they could have two golds by saying it is possible. So maybe it I stand corrected. It is not possible usually, but now it is possible, Josh. <laughs> These uh, two gentlemen have a really lovely relationship. They They're really, really do. close friends. Tamberi wrote um, an essay for the World Athletics website a few years ago about how just down in the dumps he was after this catastrophic leg injury that he suffered before the Rio games. And then he's coming back and um, he had a really bad performance at a meet and he had like locked himself in his room and his friend Mutaz is the only one he allowed to come in and talk to him. He, he's shouting at the door, Jimbo, Jimbo, please, I want to talk to you. And he comes in and he's telling him, don't try to rush it. You had a big injury. No one, you know, now you need to take your time. Don't expect too much, too early from yourself. And he wrote this like years ago. This wasn't just like a thing that we're like, people are highlighting because they shared the Olympic gold. They seem to have like a genuine close relationship and friendship. Yeah, this is three and a half years ago, this piece. It's lovely. It is so heartwarming. All right, Joel. How are you going to ruin this for us, Joel? 
Well, I was going to say, do you think if they hadn't been friends, do you think if somebody else had tied that they would have agreed to share the gold medal? Like, I mean, if like, let's say when your homeboy is not the guy that you're tied with, do you think they would have been quite as conciliatory there? I don't, I don't, I don't to, think so. Yeah, maybe not. And that, maybe. Makes it, that makes it even more touching to me. That makes it even a better Olympic moment. <laughs> uh, I think that means that all Olympians should be friends. That way, that's, that, that's, that's the solution to, to all these... Uh, Issues and also the uh, the Italian was like carrying around the cast that mm-hmm. he this is just like human interest gold baby and this guy's he's also like video gold I mean he was rolling around on the track jumping into um, into each other's arms and then he jumps into um, Lamont's Lamont. arms because the hundred was like five minutes after they agreed to share the high jump gold medal so it was like. It was a beautiful Olympic moment. It does feel, and I'm, I'm really excited to find out how it is going to be ruined, because I feel like every, all good things must be ruined. But it did feel like, in, in all possible ways, this was like a genuine, organic, everybody wins mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. from the Olympics, mm-hmm. where, as I said, like, let's check back in next week. We'll see what's what's happened since to figure out why we should feel bad about this. But for now, in this moment, let us savor the dual gold medals of our high jumping friends. Yes, yeah, so, I mean it's nice to see Italy in the spotlight. That that is heartwarming. Up next, Jeff Passan of ESPN on the baseball trade deadline. Just to note that our pal Joel Anderson will be out for this segment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about all the stuff that's happening at the Tokyo Olympics outside the field of play. The protests, the politics, the doping accusations, and trust that we have a lot to discuss. To hear that segment, you have to be a Slate Plus member, and that membership will give you access to Slate's Olympic coverage in audio and text to all of it. If you want to subscribe just for the Olympics, it's only a dollar for the first month. It's a good time to give Slate Plus a try, and hopefully you'll want to stick around. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. On June 15th, 1976, Oakland A's owner Charlie Finley traded three of his World Series winning All-Stars, starting pitcher Vita Blue to the Yankees for $1.5 million, and closer Raleigh Fingers and left fielder Joe Rudy to the Red Sox for a million apiece. I thought of that day last week, I actually remember it, when the Cubs traded the core of their 2016 championship team and the Nationals dealt the core of their 2019 winners, not for money, but lots of prospects. Finley's 1976 deals were immediately blocked by then-Commissioner Bowie Kuhn on grounds that they weren't in the best interests of baseball. Last week's seemed safe. They were just part of the craziest trade deadline in history. Ten players who participated in the All-Star Game just three weeks ago were dealt, and all but three of baseball's 30 teams made moves. 
Chronicling it all minute by minute, tweet by tweet, was our friend Jeff Passan of ESPN, who at one point during the frenzy had to pause to tell his Twitter followers, in all caps, that he was not an imposter account, spelling his name with three Fs, one S, and two Ns. Hey, Jeff. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? We are good. We will get to Jeff Passan. But first, <laughs> let's discuss the insanity. Why were so many teams so eager to move so many All-Stars this year? There were a lot of impending free agents, and that's the the catalyst behind this, I think. There was also the fact that the Chicago Cubs at one point, when they were in contention, proceeded to lose 11 consecutive games, and that the Washington Nationals for the second consecutive season decided to stink. And I think it was those two things that really drove this trade deadline, because if you look at it otherwise, Jose Barrios got moved, Joey Gallo got moved, those were two big names, but if you take the Cubs and the Nationals out of it, if you take Chris Bryant, free agent, Javi Baez, free agent, Anthony Rizzo, free agent, Max Scherzer, free agent, it is a completely different scenario. And I think the motivations of teams are a whole lot different, too. So that all makes sense. But a thing that I'm still trying to wrap my head around a bit is that it seemed like in recent years, teams were becoming increasingly hesitant to trade prospects. Mm-hmm. And that made trades harder to come by. So the idea there is cheap young players under team control for years and years are the most valuable asset in baseball. Teams are recognizing that older players who are about to hit free agency Mm -hmm. are less valuable. So why are so many teams willing to trade for these impending free agents and deal some of those valuable prospects? I think there's an understanding around baseball right now that the 2021 World Series trophy is up for grabs. There's no clear great team in baseball right now. The team with the best record is the San Francisco Giants, and I defy you to name people outside of Buster Posey, Brandon Belt, Brandon Crawford on that team. And Chris Bryant. uh, Yeah, Chris (laughs) Bryant now. But, I mean, this is a team that's uh, getting contributions from Darren Ruff and Wilmer Flores and – Mike Yastrzemski and Steven Duggar and Donovan Solano. And we can go on and on with the like D-list names that we're talking here, but they've all been productive players. And the Giants uh, have homered about 50 times more than they've allowed home runs this year. And so when you look at the best team in baseball and say on paper, it doesn't look very good. That's really good motivation, I think, for teams to go out and say, well, if this thing is as wide open as we think it is, then maybe we luck ourselves into a World Series ring this year. And if it means giving up a prospect or two, then that's something that we're going to do. I I think with, with the Dodgers, for example, their prospect depth is so deep that even giving up a Cabert Ruiz and a Josiah Gray in the Turner Scherzer deal uh, didn't put a huge dent in their farm system. Uh, the Giants have a deep farm system too. The Yankees have a deep farm system. You look at the teams that made the majority of the big moves, even the Rays going and getting Nelson Cruz, it comes from teams with good prospect depth. And so, yes, they are giving up prospects, but they're not doing so to the point where they're going to dilute their farm system so uh, egregiously that a couple years down the road, it's going to make a huge impact. It's a little bit regression to the mean, too. 100%. I mean, yep. when, when, 
when push comes to shove, owners are willing to do the things that they that they feel or look necessary, even if it means making big sacrifices. I mean, we live in Washington, Josh and I, and I think that the 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 Trey Turner inclusion in this deal was what surprised me. But then it's sort of then the steamroll effect of trading basically everybody, you know, mm-hmm. the, except for Juan Soto, um, their young star, was was when it sort of dawned on me that, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, Washington made trades with six different contenders, and this is a team that, unlike the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Giants, had done the you know they had depleted the farm system to build yep. up the team that won the world series right so this is a total reset and a team willing to say all right let's just stop now and start over yeah i i look at the nationals and cubs a little bit differently because those are the two most active teams at the deadline um the cubs were a a recognition of five years of failure and what I mean by that is after 2016, I think all three of us would have thought if the Cubs don't win another championship when this core is together, something went extremely wrong. Well, something went extremely wrong and they wanted, you know, they, they had held on for this long with this core and it just wasn't producing anymore. So they felt like they had to get something before all of these guys left in free agency. In Washington, it's a little bit different. I think it's an acknowledgement of the poor position that the franchise has put itself in through excessive contracts. Steven Strasburg being owed $210 million for the next six years after the season. Not great, Bob. Um, you know, Patrick Corbin being on the hook for uh, around $100 million still. He has not been solid this year at all. And then there's the Max Scherzer contract. And Max Scherzer is wearing Dodger blue right now. Uh, and yet the Nationals are going to owe him $105 million over the next seven seasons because the last three years, Max Scherzer has not gotten a salary. He's just had $35 million a year deferred over the seven years after the contract's expiration. So the Nationals didn't feel like they were going to be able to sign Trey Turner long-term, and because of that, wanted to turn him into the best package that it possibly could. Alex Kirshner wrote a piece for Slate. I'm curious what you think of the thesis, that being that the Cubs had this core, they expected to win more championships or at least make another World Series, mm-hmm. and that, yes, some things happened that were beyond their control, but they also didn't really spend during that period. I guess they signed you, Darvish, but other than that, what did they really do to increase and improve their chances. This is a rich franchise with a rich owner. You have Chris Bryant, who who could be more of a face of a franchise than that guy. Number two draft pick, MVP, leads them to the first World Series title in multiple generations. They don't offer him an extension. They don't sign him to a long-term deal. This isn't something that just kind of happened to the Cubs, and it was unlucky that ownership should be blamed for the way that they treated Brian and for the way that, you know, for, for the fact that the organization is in the position that it's in. I think there are a couple different ways to look at this. On one hand, um, the, the Cubs in the years after they won their championship in 2016, 
Uh, started the 2017 season with the sixth highest payroll in baseball, 2018 with the fourth highest, 2019 with the third highest, 2020 with the fifth highest. Um, they spent, but they never went over the competitive balance tax threshold of $210 million this year. And it was a little bit lower over the previous few years. I think it was 208 and 206. So um, yeah, they were never the team that was going out there and really pushing its financial boundaries. And I think if you were to give Tom Ricketts, the owner, truth serum, he would say, because we're going out and spending a lot of money on capital improvements to both the stadium and buying up things around the area there. Now, should the baseball team suffer because you want to create a business empire? Isn't that the the, the push and pull, the the great tug of sports throughout history, trying to balance making money? with putting on a representative on-field product. Uh, I, I look at the Cubs as a disappointment, but I also look at them as a team that did quite poorly in free agency, if we're being honest. Like the Darvish deal wasn't good until this uh, the 2020 season, after which they ended up trading into San Diego. The Jason Hayward contract that they signed was an utter disaster. And as their core players got more expensive in arbitration and started making more money, I think there was a little bit of a gun shy attitude that the Cubs had toward going out in free agency because they didn't want to wind up being the New York Yankees with a bunch of old bloated contracts and guys who weren't producing anymore. So part of me looks at that as, as being understandably prudent. The other part of me looks at that as not being aggressive enough and agrees with Alex's premise that, yeah, the Cubs could have and, in hindsight, should have done more. All right, Jeff. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. No more about Let's, no more about the Cubs. Do we really want to do that? <laughs> we do. All right. So, on deadline day, you're tweeting from your real account most of the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of constantly, these deals are coming through, and this is the most active deadline by far since you've been doing this job. I'm guessing. In terms of volume, I don't think so. Um, but in terms of gravity and the the quality of player dealt, I can't remember one quite like it. Okay, so what are you what are you doing other than making sure that your phone battery is charged? Like, like I find this interesting because people are like, oh, like you know, another woad bomb, but like, we don't, we don't hear about like what's happening on the, the other side. So I like the like kind of nitty gritty of what that day is like for somebody who's trying to like get these scoops. I'm sitting around glued to my phone. Uh, my fingers are tired. Uh, my head is throbbing. My stomach is in knots and I'm just hoping to have some good juju because that's, you know, honestly, that's what so much of this is. It's the fact that you've spent the previous days, weeks, months, years building up relationships with people so that when the rubber meets the road, they think of you. And what's the ratio of outgoing to uh, incoming texts? You know, there's a lot of incoming, not just with information given to me, but people seeking information as well. Like, what are you hearing about this? Or what do I need to know about that? Or 
am I wasting my time here? Or, um, you know, what do you think is going to happen? Like people in baseball are inveterate gossips. So they always want to know what other people and other teams are doing as well. And, uh, you know, there's a, a point at which I think it all ends up bleeding into like, the same one text that I feel like I'm sending over and over and over. Uh, they, it's a blur and you just try to, you try to keep all the balls in the air. And I have a, a spreadsheet with every uh, player I think could get traded uh, with his contract situation with uh, the team he's on with the potential teams he could go to who his agent is and I'm just reaching out to people all day. What are you hearing? What do you got? Anything going on uh, in hopes that sometimes I'm uh, just going to text the right person at the right time. I mean, it really is like the opening scene in Bye Bye Birdie when like everybody's <laughs> calling each other. Because I kind of think of it on the other end, too. You know, you and Ken Rosenthal and Joel Sherman and Bob Nightingale and John Heyman, you guys, you guys all have kind of the same sources, more or less, agents and front office people. And I just sort of picture this frenzy of texting and what has become sort of not comical exactly, but amusing and endearing is the way that you all acknowledge one another in your texts for who gets the beat, you know, one minute before you got it. I, I feel like that's a baseball thing, though. That, that yeah. doesn't... No, it's lovely, actually. I mean, at the end of the day on Friday, Jeff, you tweeted out, thanks to everyone for following. That was something in credit to Ken Rosenthal, Mark Feinstein, Robert Murray, John Heyman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, there's this, like, it's like the Looney Tunes cartoon with the Roadrunner and what was it, the wolf, the coyote, who at the end of the day, they clock out and say, I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, it's, uh, I, listen, I appreciate, okay, I'm, I'm not digging ditches. I'm not going into coal mines this job is a different kind of difficult and I appreciate anybody who's crazy and stupid enough to do it. And so at the, at the end of the day, like in the midst of all this also, you know, I don't have, I'm like, I don't have time to see what other people are doing. Like I'm just getting the information that I'm getting and that is what's important to me and uh, sending out credit in the, in the muck is a hard thing to do. So it's just a you know it's a it's a shout out to people who uh, who deserve it because it's fun right like this was I I I don't follow or consume it like other people but I've gotten the impression that uh, the sports fan who is on Twitter really enjoys this kind of thing and uh, the the people who helped provide it deserve that acknowledgement. Are there any ethical considerations around? sharing information with the people that you're trying to get information from? Like, how do you navigate? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, let's put it this way. I'm not getting something from one person and like running to somebody else and saying, Hey, you never, you know, you won't believe what's going on here. Um, I, I think that most of it is when there's a guy and it's clear what other teams are in on him. Uh, you know, it's it's that more than this specific nugget of information is is going to help you. Uh, there's there's none of that, and it's listen, it's it's a difficult balance, no doubt about it. But I feel like it's one that I've struck to the point where uh, 
the sources with whom I'm dealing understand that when they're giving me information that I'm not going to weaponize it or use it for personal value uh, in any way. That, that I try to do things as ethically as humanly possible, because if I don't, then it's going to be obvious and I'm going to look like a fraud. And that's the very last thing that I ever want to do. I, ch- you know, doing things intense, on the up, Jeff. do it. No, doing things on the up and up. It's, it's important. And, and it's, I'll give you one example. One thing, uh, that I have evolved to do is when I know that a player does not know that he has been traded, which happens more often than you would think, uh, I will wait for him to find out because I don't think it's fair for somebody to find out on Twitter that he has been traded. I don't think that's right. Uh, like there's there's just a there's a human part of this that sometimes when people are chasing scoops gets lost. And and it showed up in the the fake tweet uh, the fake tweets that were picked up by by other media people. The I mean, Jeff there, tweets. The well, famous there was, Jeff there, tweets. Yeah, there were there were multiple fake Jeff Assens uh, who were out there. The first one uh, duped some pretty high profile folks into thinking that uh, Chris Bryant went to the Yankees. That wasn't great. But but the one that I'm talking about is there was a fake Jeff who uh, said that. Is it bad that I'm going third person here? On <laughs> no, myself? you're going fake. You're going fake third you're person. Going fake third yeah. person. Yeah, I am. Faux passing. Um, there was a faux passing who uh, said that Joey Bart and Lamont Wade were traded for Chris Bryant. First off, that would have been a stupid trade, and nobody with any baseball sense would have seen that and said, "Oh, that could be real." But beyond that, it got amplified by a blue check mark who did not delete it, and Lamont Wade thought that he had been traded and was bummed out by it. I don't blame him because he's been fantastic for the Giants this year. And so when things like that happen, I, I like I get that people are just trying to have fun. And it's oddly flattering to think that somebody wants to imitate you. Um, it, it's weird, but but in, 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 but flattering still. I, I just wish people understood that these things have a cost. And that even if baseball players are out there making, you know, large sums of money and living the sorts of lives of luxury that so many of us wish we could uh, or or desire to, that uh, when somebody's mom or wife or uh, best friend or whatever it is sees this, um, that affects that person's life. And, And that's honestly, it's just not fair. All right, before we wrap up, I do need to say it's Ralph Wolf and Sam Sheepdog. And Ralph Wolf was also drawn by Chuck Jones and is pretty much the same as Wiley Coyote. I so. don't know Ralph Wolf and Related Sam Sheepdog. Wolf? Yeah, Sam the Sheepdog. Yeah, <laughs> Sam Sheepdog. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching these. It's that the, they sort of chase each other all day, and Ralph Wolf gets, you know, this has the same sort of fates as Wiley Coyote. And then when they're done, they punch a clock, and Ralph says goodnight, Sam, and Sam says goodnight, Ralph. That's Ralph Wolf, W-O-L-F-F-F, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Josh, thank you. Jeff Passan, 
does not work for ESPN. Do not follow him. Do not believe what he tweets. But Jeff Passan does. And we were thrilled that he joined us today. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And I'm sure as he crossed the finish line, Lamont Marcel Jacobs was thinking about just the the storied history of the 100-meter dash in the Olympics. And the first name that would have popped into his mind is the name of the first champion in the 100-meter dash, also the first champion in the 400-meter dash, Thomas Edmund Tom Burke of the United States of America, won those titles in 1896. He uh, was a student at Boston University School of Law, known as the cradle of sprinters, cradle of American sprinters. Is that right, Joel? Yeah, well, that's what they claim. So. <laughs> and Joel, what was his time in the uh, Olympic final, Mr. Burke? Well, so in the prelims, he ran an 11.8. And in the final, he ran 12 flat, which is... Pressure you know, got that, to him. That would, that, would, uh, that, would win, that would probably win a 12-year-old, a meet of 12-year-olds today. Maybe, I mean, in I fairness, know. Joel, he was wearing like leather shoes and running on sand. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> Probably wore a burlap sack too. You think that was his Olympic the Olympic uniform? <laughs> the uh, the image of him on the Wikipedia page makes it look like he's you know from the 1600s as opposed to being born in 1875. <laughs> uh, well, I'm but, sorry they don't have they don't have photography technology <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the 19th century. He looks uh, like a kind of of sad Victorian gentleman, but um, all credit, you know. Don't want to take anything away. Just like you said, you talked all this crap about Lamont Marcel Jacobs, but then you're like, don't want to take anything away from the guy. Congratulations <laughs> to him. Well, I mean, just 12 seconds is pretty terrible. I mean, we've, come a long, <laughs> we've come a long way. He, like I said, he, there's not a high school meet in Texas that he could win with that time. Okay, Not even in El Paso. Not uh, even in El Paso. Stefan, what's your Thomas Burke? Close listeners of this podcast will recall that during the 2018 Winter Olympics, I afterballed about my favorite of all the Olympics broadcast channels, Olympic Channel News. The channel is produced by the so-called host broadcaster for the games, the IOC-owned company that delivers signals of every second of every sport from every venue to the licensees who pay billions to air them. I'm going to quote what I wrote back then because nothing's really changed in the intervening three years for which I'm extremely grateful, because why mess with success? Anyway, here's how I described Olympic Channel News back in 2018. If the Olympics were a Soviet socialist republic, Olympic Channel News would be its state-run broadcaster. Olympic Channel News performs the amazing feat of imbuing the easy-to-manufacture drama of the Olympics with the excitement of an IKEA manual. Olympic Channel News is Olympics TV, as if North Korea were producing Olympics TV. I also compared it to C-SPAN, 
and to a middle school sex education film circa 1957. The formula now is as then, just the facts, recaps of events from variously accented readers. I imagine there's an Olympic Channel news in Romanian and one in Spanish and one in Tagalog and maybe one in Urdu, the BBC World Service of the Games. Then there are images from the medal ceremonies, then banal and anodyne interviews with the medal winners, all three for each recapped event. There are air quotes profiles of athletes in which a producer assembles a string of unconnected sound bites and B-roll and delicious unvoiced over montage time fillers of random unlabeled events of the flame of downtown Tokyo of giant Olympic rings sculptures of a pagoda, a fish market, whatever. There's also animation, bullet trains leaving the starting blocks, table tennis being played on top of skyscrapers and somber music, always somber music. Sometimes it's hard to understand what both the athlete and the translator are saying in these clips. Here's a profile of three-time Cuban wrestling gold medalist Mijen Lopez Nunez. My best results are fighting. Couldn't quite figure out either of them. I think the women's 76 kilogram weightlifting competition was pretty exciting, though I wasn't sure based on this Olympic Channel News recap. The gold medal contest between America's Katrinay and Nesha Patricia Diomes Barrera of Ecuador. 145 kilos, if she managed a valid lift, she will be an Olympic champion. No lift, she couldn't believe. A jury review. It was allowed. So the gold medal was heading to Ecuador and the celebrations began. The dutiful interviews with each medalist reveal the same themes that you'd expect. It's a dream, I don't have words, I'm so happy, it's been a struggle, sacrifice, injuries. But Olympic Channel News, God bless it, doesn't do what NBC would do, that is, edit out the boring shit. Here's weightlifting bronze medalist Aremi Fuentes Zavala of Mexico with the apotheosis of a post-match soundbite made only better by what I think might be computer-generated narration. I feel very happy after all the different hurdles I've faced before. I had several injuries, but this is finally a great result for me. It's a dream come true. I'm very thankful to all the people who've supported me. My family, my coach, I can't be more thankful now. As I noted in 2018, the beauty of Olympic Channel News is that in assembling highlights in as pedestrian a fashion as possible and dutifully airing empty quotes in full, the Olympics are revealed for what they are. Not crisp and gripping, but esoteric and mundane, the result of years of obsessive and painful training for one moment that might in fact prove to be anticlimactic. Olympic Channel News and this really is a great service, reminds us that athletes are not heroes deserving of our awe, but weirdo obsessives sometimes deserving of our sympathy. I want to thank everybody that helped me. It wasn't easy for me to come along all this way. Without their support, I cannot make it here. To celebrate, I will relax for a bit, but I should move on, forget about the gold medal, and start afresh. No! Badminton gold medalist Chen Yufei, you should not move on, forget about the gold medal, and start afresh. That is fucked up! 
I feel bad for her, but without Olympic Channel News, I would not have been reminded once again just how repressive and emotionally abusive Olympic sports can actually be. I mean, you guys called me the bummer. I, you know, I said, I don't talk shit about Lamont <laughs> Jacobs and everybody. And, I mean, you know, Stefan calls them a bunch of boring obsessives. I mean, so. It's okay to call all Olympians that. If you single out one, oh, okay. then, yeah, then that's, that's, that's more of a problem. I wish that I could, um, a few years ago, uh, I was part of the pop-up magazine tour, uh, just as somebody that traveled. And they did this great story on a woman who was sort of like, have you all seen the movie Election? I mean, that God, that movie is more than 20 years old now. Certainly mm-hmm. have. The lead character, Reese, the Reese Witherspoon plays Tracy Flick, is a woman basically like Tracy Flick who tried her hand at like three different sports until she finally qualified for the Olympics and went there and was terrible. And to me, that was like the more median Olympic story. Because I mean, uh, there are a lot more people that are finishing eighth and not placing at all than the people that we focus on. And she was such a, I hate to call a person a weirdo. Maybe the, the nice way of saying, she was just a little different. Eccentric. Um, yeah, eccentric and an obsessive, as Stefan said. And I was like, oh, this is probably more the median Olympic story uh, than Lamont, you know, Lamont Jacobs of Italy slash El Paso. I know I mentioned this last week, but my favorite Olympic story that I ever wrote was talking to people that finished last or just managed to finish. Um, and there was as much sort of genuine emotion in those Olympians as in the Italian dude that tied for the high jump. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Alyssa Eads. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And please subscribe to our show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.